History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. spooktacular executive producers welcome to history goes bump redux i'm your host diane and this is kelly on this redux we're going to be going back over the west virginia penitentiary which is in moundsville i was going to push this one off doing it as a redux because i wanted to wait until we actually went to the location but i don't know when we're going to be back in west virginia again so i was like you know what we're just going to go ahead and do it all right are you ready i'm ready let's redux I feel like I need to do like a Bill and Ted kind of go back into time kind of thing. Shall we? We shall. <laughs> Moundsville State Penitentiary is formerly known as the West Virginia Penitentiary and is located in the city of Moundsville. When it was open, it was one of the most violent prisons in the United States. The Gothic architecture looms large and is a reminder that this place was built to keep the bad inside. And that is what it still may be doing today, as there are rumors that this prison is haunted. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Moundsville State Penitentiary. Kelly, as you were reading that introduction, I got to thinking, remember we watched the show Castle Rock, that series? I certainly do. And I went, you know, I'm pretty sure that Shawshank Prison in that is actually the West Virginia State Penitentiary. And I'm right. In the movie Shawshank Redemption, they use the Ohio State Reformatory. But on the show, it is the Moundsville Prison. So that's another little fun fact there. Yeah. Easter egg. Yeah. (laughs) Moundsville, West Virginia was named for Grave Creek Mound that is near the city and across from the West Virginia Penitentiary. Ancient mound builders made this conical shaped burial mound and it is one of the largest burial mounds in the United States. The indigenous people were known as the Adena people and it's estimated that the mound is made from 60,000 tons of dirt. Wow. When you think that the indigenous people supposedly filled baskets of dirt and carried them and made these mounds, it's just amazing to think of all the work that would have taken. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. And yes, this mound is right across from the prison. And we know, I mean, this is like an ancient burial ground that's above the ground. You can see it. So you know it's got to have some kind of energy that it's feeding off to in the penitentiary. Meriwether Lewis actually wrote of the mound in his journal on a trip to meet William Clark for an exploration of the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. And this comes from the journals of Captain Meriwether Lewis and Sergeant John Ordway, kept on the expedition of Western exploration from 1803 to 1806. This was dated September 10, 1803. The rain ceased about day, the clouds had not dispersed, and looked very much like giving us a repetition of the last evening's frolic. 
There was but little fog, which they spell with two G's, and I should have been able to set out at sunrise, but the corporal had not yet returned with the bread. I began to fear that he was piqued with the sharp reprimand I gave him the evening before for his negligence and inattention with respect to the bread and had deserted. Guess he got in trouble for not having bread around? In this, however, I was agreeably disappointed. About eight in the morning, he came up, bringing with him the two men and the bread. They instantly embarked, and we set out. We passed several very bad rifles this morning, and at 11 o'clock, six miles below our encampment of last evening, I landed on the east side of the river and went on shore to view a remarkable artificial mound of earth called by the people in the neighborhood the Indian Grave. This remarkable artificial mound of earth stands on the east bank of the Ohio, 12 miles below Wheeling and about 700 paces from the river. As the land is not cleared, the mound is not visible from the river. This mound gives name to two small creek called Little and Big Grave Creek, which passing about half a mile on each side of it and fall into Ohio about a mile distant from each other, the mound stands on the most elevated ground of a large bottom containing about 4,000 acres of land. The bottom is bounded from northeast to southwest by a high range of hills which seem to describe a semicircle around it of which the river is the diameter. Near the mound to the north stands a small town lately laid out called Elizabethtown. There are but six or seven dwelling houses in it as yet. In this town, there are several mounds of the same kind of the large one, but not near as large in various parts of this bottom. The traces of old entrenchments are to seen, though. They are so imperfect that they cannot be traced in such manner as to make any complete figure. For this inquire, I had not leisure. I shall therefore content myself by giving a description of the large mound and offering some conjectures with regard to the probable purposes for which they were intended by their founders whoever they may have been, which I find interesting. He must not have been able to find out from anybody who built these things. The mound is nearly a regular cone, 310 yards in circumference at its base and 65 feet high, terminating in a blunt point whose diameter is 30 feet. This point is concave, being depressed about five feet in the center. Around the base runs a ditch 60 feet in width, which is broken or intersected by a ledge of earth raised as high as the outer bank of the ditch on the northwest side. This bank is about 30 feet wide and appears to have formed the entrance to the fortified mound. Near the summit of this mound grows a white oak tree. I can't believe there's a tree growing on this. Whose girth is 13 and a half feet. My goodness. From the aged appearance of this tree, I think its age might reasonably be calculated at 300 years. I mean, that's fascinating to me. This is at the top of this mound. So how old is the mound? Right. The whole mound is covered with large timber, sugar tree, hickory, poplar, red, and white oak. I was informed that in removing the earth of a part of one of these lesser mounds that stands in the town, the skeletons of two men were found, and some brass beads were found among the earth near these bones. My informant told me the beads were sent to Mr. Peel's museum in Philadelphia, where he believed they now were. So I just find it fascinating that there are several mounds in the town, not just this big one. There were littler ones, too. And you got to wonder how close were some of those mounds? Was this prison possibly built on some of those? Well, quite possibly. And clearly, they are burial mounds since they're finding bones in them. Moundsville is a combination of two towns. Elizabethtown, that was settled by Samuel and James Tomlinson and incorporated in 1830, and Mound City, that was incorporated in 1832. The towns combined in 1865. As the Civil War raged on in America, the state of Virginia was embroiled in its own personal conflict. Part of the state was preparing to secede. When it did... West Virginia found itself lacking in jail space. They attempted to keep prisoners in small county jails, but in 1865, nine prisoners broke out. 
the community was outraged and the press started putting pressure on the legislature for a real penitentiary. The government bought 10 acres of land just outside of the city of Moundsville for $3,000 in 1866 and built a temporary wooden structure. Officials liked the structure of the North Illinois Penitentiary in Juliet, and they designed their new jail after that. The first of several architects to work on the jail was Joseph S. Fairfax. Prison labor was brought in from Ohio to construct the building. Hand-cut sandstone was quarried to serve as building material. The North Wagon Gate was the first building erected, and this was the original entrance to the jail. Next came the North Hall, which would house the most dangerous criminals, and South Hall cell blocks. The North Hall housed the kitchen, dining area, the hospital, and a chapel. A four-story tower connected the cell blocks. There would be multiple building campaigns throughout the years. At the turn of the century, the front entrance was moved to the location where it is now, and this part of the jail is very impressive. The style is neo-Gothic and appears castle-like, with towers topped by battlements framing each side of the 826-foot facade. This building stands four stories. Above the entry, the West Virginia State Seal is carved into the stone, featuring the ironic Latin motto that translates to, Mountaineers are always free. Yeah, not if you're in here. (laughs) Yeah, probably not. (laughs) The crenulated front porch was added in 1908 and features small octagonal Romanesque piers supporting four centered Tudor arches. And you can imagine there were several jails in the country that were built this way that looked very castle-like. How that would feel when you're coming into this prison and you've got this castle-like place. It must have been very intimidating to some of these prisoners. I would imagine so. The inside of the jail block was arranged according to the Auburn plan, which was named for Auburn, New York, where it was developed. The design consists of tiers of cell blocks that are several stories high and built back to back. In 1894, a cage was added to the first floor entrance. Prisoners would be searched and then placed in this caged wheel that was then turned and the prisoner would exit through a small hole where a guard was waiting for him. This helped to prevent last-minute escapes. With the new additions described earlier, the prison doubled in size and eventually covered 20 acres. Points of interest would be solitary confinement, where men would sometimes go mad from the silence, the hole, which was used for punishment, the execution chamber with old Sparky that eventually was moved to the death house, Rat Row, where snitches were kept for their protection, and the North Wagon Gate, where hangings took place. The trap doors for this purpose can still be seen there. The cells here were used for temporary housing of men and women. There were upwards of 80 women at the prison at any given time until 1947 when a new facility was built for them. The jail opened with 251 inmates in 1876, many of whom had actually built the penitentiary. Workshops were built and the prison had multiple industries set up including carpentry, blacksmithing, baking, painting, and wagon building. As was the case with other penitentiaries at this time, the goal was to reform prisoners and the West Virginia jail initially was a good place to serve time. There was education and a library and there was plenty of food. But then things went horribly wrong. This would become one of the most violent prisons in the country as conditions worsened and the prison quickly became overcrowded. The cells were very small, measuring five foot by seven foot and usually had three men in each. Good grief. When you think about why was a penitentiary called that, it's because it was supposed to make you penitent. I don't think these people were very penitent as they were getting more and more crowded and not being fed and that kind of thing. Right. I would imagine not. 
The worst of the worst were soon imprisoned here, many of whom were sentenced to die. 84 men were hanged before West Virginia adopted the electric chair method in 1951. One of those inmates, Frank Heyer, was actually decapitated during his execution, and that would be the last public hanging. Oh, my goodness. Kelly, we know people would come out for these hangings, and they'd bring the whole family and have a picnic. You can only imagine what that would have been like to have somebody get hanged and, oh, the body kept going while the head is, like, going in a different direction and horrible. Nine men were electrocuted from 1951 to 1959. West Virginia abolished capital punishment in 1965. At the time the electric chair was being pushed forward legislatively, the warden at the prison sent a letter to the state legislature explaining why this would be a mistake. He wrote, The present system of conducting executions here is by all means the most humane, the safest and least painful, and is less expensive. From the time the subject is starting from his cell until he reaches the scaffold, steps on the trap, is bound, strapped, the noose adjusted, the black cat placed, the brief prayer said, and the subject dropped and dead, is less than 60 seconds. That is kind of shocking because I do know that most of the time hanging is not that quick. No. So if it is that quick, they are doing it in the best way possible because hanging should snap a neck. And so it kills somebody immediately. I guess so. But I'm like, wow, talk about a brief prayer. (laughs) We are walking you, getting you all adjusted and bam. Yeah, that's not much time. There have been 12 executions here since the law requiring executions at the penitentiary passed, three under my predecessors, nine under my administration. In every case, there has not been the slightest hitch or error, and the subject has been subjected to no delay. So terribly hard to stand. Our people know exactly how to do this work, and it's done quickly. But the electric chair is the very opposite. It takes 10 minutes to adjust the electrodes, which seems like 10 hours. The sponges and arrange for everything, for everything has to be done with the most absolute precision. And in the only two states that have this system, there have been recently the most unsatisfactory results. And the current has had to be applied over and over to the great horror and disgust of the officials. That is not all. Electrocution is the most horrible death known. Every nerve is shattered, every blood vessel bursted, the bones crushed and broken, and in 10 minutes after every particle of the victim's body is black and blue, a most gruesome sight, exactly what occurs to parts of the victim of a stroke of lightning. So I think he uh, described that pretty, pretty well there. He definitely was not for the electric chair. Yeah, clearly not. And I can't say as I blame him. Well, anybody who's seen the Green Mile and you see what happens when they don't wet the sponge. Death became an ominous part of the prison. Not only were there these 96 men who were executed, but several prisoners committed suicide and many were preyed upon by their own peers. 36 men were murdered within the walls. It's believed that over 900 men died at this prison. There was torture here, too. Guards had whips and liked to use them. The two unique forms of torture used at Moundsville were kicking Jenny and the shoe fly. The kicking Jenny was an instrument built at the jail in a shape of a quarter circle. Prisoners were strapped to it naked, stretched, and then whipped. The shoe fly was an instrument that a prisoner could be strapped to with his head pinned back and he was completely unable to move. He was then blasted with ice water from a hose until he nearly drowned. I know in the original episode that we did for this, I described it in this way. You think about during the civil rights movement and you had a lot of the activists who were out there and they would turn the fire hoses on them and just blast them into walls and things like that. Right. That's what the shoe fly would have been like. 
Prison riots broke out here, too. One of them occurred in 1973, and five guards were taken captive. The basement of the prison was set on fire. People could hear the riots from outside of the prison. There was screaming and glass breaking. A couple of inmates were stabbed. Another riot occurred in 1985, and 15 hostages were taken that time. The prisoners demanded better conditions. One witness outside heard inmates requesting better medical services, better living quarters, and then Kelly, a pizza and some women. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) They knew what they wanted. I mean, we're going for the, yeah, yeah. we want better medical services and, you know, maybe not cram us all into these itty bitty little cells. And then they're like, and can we get a pizza and some chicks? Clearly. They had their priorities lined up. I I mean, at least they went for medical services first. Yeah. Yeah. Several escapes were made from the jail over the years as well. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. The penitentiary was officially closed via court order on March 27, 1995 because of the inhumane conditions inside of the prison. In 1998, the Moundsville Economic Development Council obtained a 25-year lease on the prison, and they used the funds that they make for restoration of the structures. There are daily tours and paranormal investigations are welcomed. The jails open from April through November. In October, they host the haunted attraction, Dungeon of Horrors. Kelly, if my math is correct, and that could be dangerous because... I was told there'd be no math. (laughs) I'm not very good at the math. I was in honors math in high school. I have no idea why because I didn't know what I was doing. 25 years means next year, 2023, is when this lease is going to come up. So I'm wondering what's going to happen to the jail at that time. If they're going to re-up it or if somebody else is going to end up buying it, it'll be interesting to see what happens next year. Yep, absolutely. There were a couple of infamous inmates at Moundsville. One was Charles Manson. I'm sure a few people have heard of him. Have you heard of him, Kelly? Uh, Just a little bit. (laughs) When he was just getting started with his criminal life, he ended up here at Moundsville, and he would actually later request to be housed back here again after the Manson murder. So he definitely liked the place for some reason. Clearly. The other had a connection to the Greenbrier ghost. Have you heard this story before? Uh, I would say yes. (laughs) I think we covered it as one of our moments in oddity. So in 1873, Elva Zona Heaster was born in Greenbrier County, West Virginia. In 1896, she met and fell in love with a drifter who was passing through Greenbrier named Erasmus, and they married soon after. A young boy running an errand for Erasmus to the home that Zona and Erasmus shared found Zona dead at the bottom of the stairs. What a horrible thing for him to find. The local doctor gave the body of Zona a cursory examination after Erasmus had already moved the body to the bedroom and dressed Zona in her finest dress. I think we should be kind of questioning here a little bit. Uh, why did you move the body? Yeah, I would imagine. And That's what when, I would do. Yeah, and, and the cursory <laughs> examination means I don't think he touched the body because if he'd really done an examination, he would have noticed something very important about this. So he makes the exam brief as Erasmus seemed very overcome by grief. So he's like, you know, I, I don't want to bother this guy too much. So he decided that Zona, she must have fainted and fallen down the stairs. During the wake and before burial, Erasmus was very watchful of the body, concealing Zona's neck and keeping people away from the body. Shortly after this, Zona's mother claimed that her daughter appeared to her in dreams for four nights in a row. The ghost would explain that Erasmus had been cruel and beaten her many times. On this final beating, the ghost claimed that Erasmus had broken her neck and she turned her head almost completely around to show her mother. 
which is what the doctor would have found had he actually done more than a cursory exam of the body. He would have noticed that her neck was broken. Zona's mother went to the prosecutor and Zona's body was exhumed after the doctor admitted he had not done a thorough examination. It was proven that Zona's neck was broken and even more incriminating, her windpipe had been crushed. So somebody strangled her and broke her neck. Rasmus went to trial and his defense tried to make Zona's mother appear crazy by asking her about the ghostly visits, something the prosecution had avoided. Zona's mother was unwavering and the people of the town believed her, so the plan of the defense backfired. Erasmus was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison where he died three years later. The ghost never appeared again and many believe Zona's mother made the whole story up because she didn't think anybody would listen to her theory that her daughter had been murdered without a witness. And I think that this was covered on multiple of our episodes, from what I recall, not just as a moment in oddity, but something that's referred to on a few different ones. Yeah, there's only a couple of stories out there where the evidence was based on a ghost being the witness. Exactly. Now, whether she actually saw her daughter or not, whatever, her mother definitely knew something was not right here. The reason why I tend to believe her is I would think that maybe Zona had told her before that maybe her husband had beat her or maybe they'd noticed it. I don't know how close they lived to each other or anything like that. But for her to know for sure that the reason that she had died was from a broken neck and the fact that the windpipe was crushed because some people could say, well, if she fell down the stairs and broke her neck, I mean, that could be an accident, but a crushed windpipe? Yeah, a little bit different. Yeah, that doesn't happen when you fall down the stairs. Prisons breed pain and loneliness. They're stone structures that seem to absorb all the emotions experienced by those inside, and most of those feelings are negative. Was it the violence of the prison and the deaths that have led to reputed hauntings at this location? Or does a large burial mound across from it have something to do with the supernatural activity? Or was it a combination of the two? Most of the activity takes place in the shower cages, death row, the chapel, the sugar shack, which was a recreational area, and the north wagon gate where executions were conducted. The circular entrance gate is known to turn all by itself. So it makes you wonder if some inmates are coming back into the prison after they've passed away. I mean, why would you want to? I don't know, but (laughs) that's the only reason I could think that circular entrance gate would be moving unless they're going back out through it. Yeah, could be. Turnstile. Visitors have been terrified when cell doors and heavy metal doors close on them. So you imagine you're taking a tour and go into a cell and all of a sudden the door slams behind you. Yeah, I I really do enjoy investigating prisons. Mm Mm-hmm and jails, but that would definitely set me off a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, because I mean, the closing of a jail door is so distinctive and so loud that yeah, it would be definitely that way. Disembodied screams are heard coming from the cells. A person on a tour decided to videotape some of the tour and when they watched it later, they'd caught a long and terrifying scream. Disembodied footsteps are heard on the stairs. The Sugar Shack, which Kelly just told you was the recreation area, there was a leader here of the Aryan Nation named Jasper, and he was murdered. His ghost is said to still haunt the area, and investigators have caught very aggressive-sounding EVPs featuring Jasper. 
People claim to have seen his apparition as well. He is thought to be the most malevolent spirit here, but he isn't the only mean spirit. There are several here in the prison. Yeah, and from what we're hearing, I would be a little bit more hesitant to get into the shower cages at this location. You mean like what you did at the Hamilton County Jail? Exactly. Well, if you think about this, I'm assuming that a shower cage was one of those big open areas that a whole bunch of guys are in, whereas the one at the Hamilton County Jail was a shower that was actually in the cell. Yeah, but there were, what, three of us in there? (laughs) There were three of you in there, but Kelly, I could see. It was very uncomfortable for you having two other whatevers that you couldn't see with you. Imagine a whole shower cage with like 20 entities hanging out and going, ooh, there's a girl in here. Yeah, very much uncomfortable with that. Yeah. (laughs) Orville Adkins haunts the North Wagon Gate, where his execution was botched. He had kidnapped a minister who was later found dead. Just before the noose could be placed on his neck, an assistant pulled the trap door too soon, and Adkins fell 20 feet to the stone path below. He wasn't hurt, but stunned. He was dragged back up to the scaffold and hanged properly. His footsteps are heard pacing, and he presents as an angry spirit. People have caught EVPs of him as well. That's quite the rude awakening. You just be standing on the trap door waiting for them to put the noose on you, and then bam, all of a sudden your feet are out from underneath you. Yeah. I mean, it's stressful enough for them, Mm -hmm. I'm sure. And then you go with that, and good grief. Can't imagine. There's the ghost of a maintenance man who used to live in the basement still hanging out down there. The prisoners believed he was a snitch, and it would seem that he would report to the guards everything that the inmates were up to. So they cornered him while he was on the toilet and stabbed him to death. Good grief. Of all places. He is now seen (laughs) as a shadow figure, according to some people. Polly Gear described the shadow man as looking like black static as it moved. The face and hands were not defined, but it was shaped like a man. Polly shined her flashlight at the shadow and her light went through it, and it seemed to spook the shadow figure. It did not feel threatening to her. You know what's interesting? You know, she shined her flashlight at the shadow and the light goes through it. It makes you wonder, like, what was it still kind of dark around where the beam of light would have been? Because you would think if the shadow has something kind of corporeal to it. Right. Then how would it just dissipate? Yeah. Not go through it. It would like just be right on it. Like when you put a flashlight on somebody, you'd light it up. Yeah. I don't know. I've seen shadow figures. Mm -hmm. And when I've seen them, it has been in the very, very darkest of moments. So when they say blacker than black, it has held true for what. I've experienced. So I don't know in regards to this. It would just be fascinating to do a test with that. Kind of like when you saw Mr. Henry at McPike Mansion to turn a flashlight on him and see, does the flashlight go through the shadow that's in front of you? Or does it like just hold on it, like kind of bounce back at you from it? Right. Because he looked like he had a physical form to you, just not completely manifested. He seemed solid to me. So I don't know. I can't imagine how that would work, honestly. He just seemed solid, even though it was blacker than black for him. Mm -hmm. But he had a definitive form. It wasn't like a a misty kind of black entity. It was very solid. So I don't know. I never would have thought to turn a flashlight on in that moment. I was just very taken with what was happening. And what was interesting about this, too, is it seemed to spook the shadow figure. So almost like he was like, could he feel the beam going through him? Or was he just like, why did that go through me? If he thinks he's still alive or whatever. Could be. 
There is a malevolent spirit in the prison that goes by the name of Robert. This was an inmate who was beaten to death by guards and buried within the prison walls. He is angry and known to touch and scare visitors. Disembodied screams and footsteps are heard. Noises with no origin, cell doors open and close on their own. Listener Josh Kitchen had joined the podcast on the original episode and he had several creepy EVP and recorded unexplained noises that he shared. He and his group have investigated the prison several times and it never disappoints. They themselves have seen shadow figures in the jail. So Kelly, I'm going to go ahead and play these EVP that Josh had shared with us on that original episode. I grabbed those and there are eight of them here that I'm going to play for everybody. So here is the first one. I'll play it and then tell you what I think it says and then we'll play it again. Is anyone here with us? Was that you? Mm-hmm. Wasn't me. Wasn't me either. I heard, I heard it. Me too. What's your name? So this sounds like it's saying me. And we'll play it again. Is anyone here with us? Was that you? Mm-hmm. Wasn't me. Wasn't me either. I heard, I heard it. Me too. What's your name? This next one is from the psych room. And you're just going to hear a sound. And this was something that they all heard audibly. What's that? What is that? Josh? Hello, dude. Where'd it come from? This is also in the psych ward, and it's just a bunch of random noises. And again, they heard these audibly. These aren't EVP. It's just like you can hear in the recording that they're hearing the noises. Those are always my favorite, too. Yeah. I mean, I love it when you hear something audibly because then, you know, you're sharing that experience with other people. It really is happening. You're not just hearing things. Are you touching my leg? (sighs) Next, we have an EVP from the boiler room. All right. What do you think about these magazines? You want them to leave us for what? Let me try that again. Would you like us to leave one of them for you? We think it says no. Let's play it again. All right. What do you think about these magazines? You want them to leave us for what? Let me try that again. Would you like us to leave one of them for you? And another EVP from the boiler room. Do you have an angel looking after you? Do you believe in God? We think it's saying something like, I'm a demon. And we'll go ahead and play that again. Do you have an angel looking after you? Do you believe in God? And it's really chilling when you think that they were asking about God and then this thing responds that it's a demon. Again, it could be a human spirit that's just being like, you know, a bad dude who's like, I'm going to say I'm a demon. Or maybe it was. Right. A lot of times I think that if you're bad on this earth, you're bad in the afterlife. And so you could clearly, as that kind of negative spirit, be playing with people. Exactly. I'm going to play this next one and see what you think you're hearing at the very beginning there. Did you just hear the sigh? Josh felt like that was a sigh at the beginning. I'm not sure what that noise is. It didn't sound like a sigh to me. It's just something weird and bizarre. We'll play it again. Did you just hear the sigh? 
Here we have some more random noises. Can we see you? And then here's another EVP. We think it's saying, my name is Corey. And we'll play it again. So yeah, those were very interesting. I'm glad that Josh shared those with us. And uh, yeah, it's one of those places that's got some intense energy there for sure. Sounds like it. And, you know, I know you said, "Eh, I don't know when we'll get back up there, but... I certainly hope we do. So there was this female guest who was there on a tour, or maybe she was investigating. I'm not, you know, she actually might have been investigating. And she felt like she passed through a cold pocket of air, which caused her to shake with fear. And then she caught what looked like a shadow figure in a picture. This is something that Ghost Hunters brought up on their episode when they went to the Moundsville Penitentiary and they wanted to debunk this picture. And they felt like they did because they said, you know, I think it was just her projecting her shadow down this long hallway because you look down this long hallway, the picture features a shadow at the end of it. The problem I had with that explanation is the shadow wasn't connected to her. When you throw a shadow, Kelly, is it connected to your legs? Always. Yeah. So if you have a shadow figure that is not connected to the person that you're saying is throwing that shadow, it's, it's not a possibility. Very interesting. Plus in the picture, there is a pole that seems to be in front of the shadow. So the shadow would be projecting on the pole if she was throwing it. I think she might have caught something there, but Ghost Hunters kind of blew it off and said that they debunked it, which I don't necessarily agree with. Well, we can all have different opinions. That is true. Do the lost spirits of inmates still roam these halls? Is the Moundsville State Prison in West Virginia haunted? That That is for you you to to decide. decide. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to this Redux and especially for your support of the podcast. We literally could not do it without you guys. Hope you're enjoying these. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.